0: Okay, Nahum, such an obscure book in the Bible, I don't even know how to properly pronounce it. It might be Nahum, it might be Nahum, who knows. But Nahum seven says this, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble, he cares for those who trust in him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Now, Nahum wrote those words after about a hundred years of hell. The Assyrians had uh, come knocking on their northern frontiers and had completely dominated, invaded, and taken over the kingdom of northern Israel. And they had come and taken their food, and they had taken their livestock, and they had consistently raided and exacted tribute and it had just been a hellish existence with Assyria and this megalithic empire being on their northern border and coming in and making their land their area of expansion. And so for a hundred years fathers had not had enough food to feed their children and mothers had watched their babies go hungry and it had been a hellish experience for about one hundred years. And now, Assyria itself is teetering on the edge of destruction. And now, at the time that Nahum writes this, the Assyrian Empire is beginning to unravel and crumble around them. And looking back over those 100 years, Nahum writes this. Looking at the pain, the unfulfilled desire, the prayers that had seemingly gone unanswered, the disappointment, the troubles, and the trials. And then seeing the day when good finally has come to them, that they are being freed, that their deliverance is at hand, he writes this, The Lord is good, a refuge in a time of trouble, and he cares for those who trust in him. When there's trouble, we have refuge in God. When victory finally comes, we see in God his goodness and his truth. God, we learned in Sunday school, is good. God is goodness. And, Nahum is saying, God and goodness are with us in times of trouble, in times of worry, in times of strife, in times of difficulty. And God and goodness are with us in times of victory, when our hearts are calm, when times are pleasant, when things are going well. I talked with a friend a while ago and asked how his soul was. I tend to do that. And he detailed some things that were going on in his life, and there were some challenges, some hard things. And he said to me after a while, though, with a concerned look on his face, he says, you know, I kind of run the risk of being in denial here. Because, as all these things that he'd listed, you know, it looks like my soul is in many ways vulnerable. It looks like not just my own soul, but my family. And then he said, if we look beyond to the world around us, where there are wars and rumors of wars, humanity is in a struggle. My own soul is in a struggle. But he says, the truth is, I don't really feel that much of a struggle right now. Honestly, I have this overriding sense of peace I have this internal sense of well-being about all things, and there must be something wrong with that. (laughs) And he said it just that way, as though there were something wrong with this internal sense of peace. Well, Life is indeed challenging sometimes. There are dance steps out before us that are difficult to learn, and the consequence of not learning them is trials and challenges and difficulties. And we will continue talking about dance steps after the new year, but between now and then, I want to talk a little bit about Advent. Because Advent has typically been a time in the church calendar when people stand back and reflect, stand back and think about the broader, grander scheme of things. Think about history in its context, way back. Like the fact that the universe is The fact that existence is. The fact that there is somethingness instead of nothingness. And then if we examine closely, we begin to see how this universe is unfolding. And when we do, and we look past the obvious, and we look past the mundane, we see that threaded throughout this unfolding reality around us, there is the handiwork of goodness. We begin to see a picture that is bigger than merely struggle. A picture that is bigger than hardship. We see dancing. We see joy. We see a party. So these days leading up to the Feast of Christmas, I want to think together about hope and about joy and about goodness. Because in truth... The spiritual journey cannot be experienced only by struggle. As valuable as challenge and difficulty are for our souls, savoring goodness is equally valuable. Having a sense of awe or an experience of the presence of the Spirit of God within us, these things are just as important as those times of stripping away those times of pouring out, those times of wilderness, those times of discipline and effort. A few weeks ago, we talked about the dance step of gratitude. And that dance step is rooted in the capacity to see goodness clearly. To see the good, to savor it where it is, and to recognize it all around us. So I want to think for a moment about the truth that hope is resident in our lives. Now, it is true that we find clarity and we find wisdom that our souls are matured when we face adversity. But when the journey is only about adversity, we become stunted. There are times when our souls feed on green pastures, and these are just as critical for our soul's health as the times when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There are times when circumstances restore our souls, when goodness and joy and peace and love and kindness, when the very fruits of God's Spirit are present among us and touchable, tangible, and we can see them around us. But often, people, a human tendency is to fail to notice the spiritual depths that are resident in pleasure, resident in goodness, resident in the good times. We tend to take the good times for granted and look past their spiritual worth only to return with spiritual fervor to the times when there are challenges and difficulties. Well, this is a human tendency. And seeing this human tendency, people of spirit have structured their calendar as far back as Sinai to include ample times to shift our focus back to the good to shift our focus away from that which is the mundane or away from that which is the trial and to see that which is goodness. When we feast, we savor goodness. When we do so, we access truth in a way that can only be accessed that way. When we linger on beauty and we plumb the depths of favor, And kindness. When we focus on that which is good around us, we open ourselves to God in a way that is critical for our soul's development. God is good. When we focus on goodness, we are focusing on God. Now, spiritual people have often talked about finding peace in God even in the midst of adversity and difficult times. Those on the spiritual journey tell us that struggle often frees us from illusion that struggle will often move us to a place of maturity and development. The pathway to life and hope and peace are often found in effort and fight and struggle. But the other side of spirituality is equally important, and this is the time of year when we highlight that. Rest and peace and celebration and promise are often seen as somehow frivolous, Less critical, less important, less spiritual. And when we put that value system in place, we miss a great reality. For hope and goodness are critical to our soul's health. So, I would encourage you now to get out of something to write with anyone not have anything that's all right terry will come around and hand you a pencil right now you're going to need something with which to write if you have that not just raise your hand terry will come and pass that to you hopefully you have a piece of paper if you do not have a piece of paper use your hand my kids do that when they're in school <laughs> write it on your hand you can read it before you wash yourself later and i want you to make yourself a note and here's the note that i want you to make to yourself that you would sometime in the next nine days do something to savor goodness. So write that down. Do something to savor goodness. Now, I've got a few suggestions of things you might do. What you might do is that you might write a letter of thanks to someone, someone who has influenced your life well, someone who has done something significant, to you, something that you have seen, that you appreciate, someone who evinces in their lives goodness, someone who characterizes virtue, and that you would write them, write them a letter and tell that. That might be one way that you would savor goodness in these next nine days. Perhaps you would write a psalm of your own, that you would write a letter to God not unlike what David did. Or write a letter to yourself in which you log all of those things that are goodness and virtue on this planet. Maybe in the next nine days you would find some time to bundle yourself up in a coat and go sit outside where it's quiet and watch the winter upon us and enjoy and savor creation. Or maybe you would quiet your voice for a full half day and say no words for that half day. And while you're not speaking, spend that time making a log of all that you note that is good and right and noble and virtuous. So make yourself a note that says, do something in the next nine days to savor goodness. Now, say it again. Send you an email Why you didn't write it down? <laughs> no, I'm not going to send you an email. <laughs> Advent has historically been a time for just this kind of thing, focusing on what is good, what is wholesome, what is joyous, what is pure. It's historically been a time when we elevate our sights beyond the struggle to the noble and to the virtuous, to focus on those things that breed peace and those things that build hope. Now the word Advent means coming or arrival. Now what it's come to mean in church history is is over this period of time is to elevate our focus to three comings, three arrivals. The first one is the arrival of Jesus, the birth of Christ, Jesus who lived his humanity in such a way that the divine core, the divine center was able to radiate freely. The second advent is the future coming of Christ when the transcendent Christ comes for us, either when we breathe our last or when time comes to an end. And the third is the current advent, the journey of awareness to our very center where God is, that we can, in stillness and in quiet, just as Robin said a few moments ago, we have the capacity to see the unseen, to sense the Spirit of God within us, either when we see it through circumstances or bubbling up from within us, the very expression of God's nature flowing through us as it does through Christ. So Advent is more than marking a 2,000-year-old historical event. Advent celebrates something that is a universal truth. Our God has come for us, our God will come for us, and our God is coming for us even now in this moment, every moment in the present. Advent celebrates an immovable hope. Wrong is even now being set right because our God is within us. Advent says, lift your eyes to your cosmic story, this grand narrative that tells you where we began, where we will end, and what have been the milestones and markers along the way. Elevate your sight to the grand narrative and find your place in it. That wrong is being made right for God is within you. Love is even now overcoming hate, for God is within you. Our souls are even now being redeemed, because God is within you. Paradise is prevailing over hellishness. A world that has gone mad is being made sane. Good is triumphing over evil, because God is within you. Elevate your eyes to that story, because it's really easy to lose that story in the midst of the mundane normalness of a life marked by sin and failure. Advent celebrates the truth that all of creation is being reconciled to God, that our deepest hungers are being fulfilled, that our ultimate purpose for existence is being accomplished, and that the story is ongoing even now. And it reminds us to raise our eyes to this bigger horizon because so often our eyes get downcast, looking at our plodding feet, make the paycheck, lose the weight, parent, the teenager, or our eyes are so often downcast with regret, what I should have done that would have made my life better or my family better, what I should have done to plan for the future better, or how many disciplines I ignored that I shouldn't have, and now I'm facing the consequences for that, or so often our eyes are downcast by the numbing sameness of life. Week after week, it's the same dishes. Month after month, it's the same sales quota. Year after year, it's the same marital struggle. And the numbing, mundane sameness often brings us to keep our eyes downcast. And the trivial becomes the centerpiece of our existence. And recognizing that human tendency, those fathers and mothers in the faith have come and said twice a year, once leading up to the Feast of Easter, And once leading up to the feast of Christmas, elevate your eyes to the truth that is to be found in the heights, not in the depths. Christ has come. Christ will come. And Christ is even now here, coming, breaking into your heart, into your life, with purpose and life and vision and hope. Lift your eyes. So, these are the truths that we are called upon by our calendar to celebrate during this season. Now I read this story in to us about three years ago, but I thought it bear bore repeating. I was absolutely positively sure. Well, maybe. I thought that I had sensed a spirit nudge to leave my church job to attend grad school, but there I was on my last day as a campus minister, no money, no job tomorrow, two kids and a car that had been wrecked the day before. And I told my wife, I am going to my office since I have it for one more day and I'm not coming home until I hear from God. I prayed every kind of prayer I knew. I loosed, I bound, I wept, I quoted, I thanked, I shouted, I kneeled, I lay on my face, and finally I ran out of ways to pray, so I stopped. Lord... I got into this mess because I thought you called me to resign and to go to grad school. I may have missed it, but I'm in trouble. I've got a family, and I need you to provide. The Bible was open on my desk that morning. A phrase jumped out to me from the story of Abraham. The Lord will provide. It was the only thing on the whole page that I had underlined from some prior reading. At that point, I was spent. My soul... And the office were quiet. Reading those words, I was sure that the same God who spoke his name to Abraham had just spoken to me. I was convinced that God not only was Abraham's provider in the past, but also my provider now. So I eagerly called my wife. Guess what? God just told me he's going to provide. Do you have a new job? Well, no. Do you have money for the rent? No. No. Do you know how we're going to get the money to pay for grad school? Uh, no. Okay, well, call me back when you have that figured out. So as I hung up, I thought to myself, well, I guess you had to be there. <laughs> Later, at 10 p.m., a couple that I knew phoned me unaware of my morning experience. They felt an urgency to call before going to bed. They wanted to give a large gift to help me go to grad school. Would that be okay, they asked. Well, sure. Sure. <laughs> They would pay our rent, fix our car, and help us move. Plus, they pledged to invest in us every month until I got through school. It launched an amazing season of God's daily provision until eventually I graduated. But that day, I came to know in a very real way that God is not just the I was of Abraham's day. He is the I am of my every day. I came to know that God is not just the I was of Abraham's day, but he is the I am of my every day. Advent is a time to remind ourselves of God's I am-ness, that he is present among us, that he intersects the lives of those who have eyes to see. Now, stories like this run a couple of risks. The first risk is that they can create in us, when we hear them, a form of religious apathy. Instead of encouraging us to find and then resonate with the rhythm of the divine that is always at work in us and around us, it can cause us to become passive, to do nothing, to look for nothing, but to simply say some words to God, thinking that perhaps our requests are some kind of magic incantation, and then wait for a miracle. Now in the next dance step that we're going to talk about, Jesus is going to warn us about that. You're going to hear him enjoin us to personal responsibility. There's a connection, he will say, between what you do and what God does, between what you do and what you pray. There is the risk that we can become passive when we hear stories like that. The second risk is that since drama like that doesn't happen every day, when we hear stories like that, We tend to feel like God's forgotten stepchild. And when that happens, we forget that merely because drama doesn't happen very often doesn't mean that blessing doesn't happen very often. Because we forget the richness of the blessing of having life and having energy in our bodies and to be able to breathe in fully and take a full lung full of air to love and to be loved and those miracles are always present among us we forget that life itself is a miracle we forget that there is just as robin said early an organ inside of us that can sense the spirit and can be aware of the whispers of the divine it may be atrophied and we may need to look again But that miracle of us being the people of God, aware of and experiencing God, is present in us, for us, always. We forget these blessings, and Advent reminds us to go back and to reexamine. It reminds us that God is always present. Within our very being, wisdom is always speaking. Virtue is always calling. Miracles are always happening. Divine destinies are always being forged and hammered out. Promise and hope are always erupting from within us. Advent is a time to raise our eyes and see what is right in front of us. A time to reflect on the goodness of normalness. A time to reflect on the goodness of normalness. Now here, here's a few things that we're asked to remember during Advent. One, Advent asks us to remember that history has a purpose. To lift our eyes from today and to see time capsulized in the eternal. In the oneness of past, present, and future. And to recognize that though today all of creation is groaning, awaiting redemption that we are wrapped in time that folds back on itself such that the full redemption has already but not yet been made whole. Advent reminds us to lift our eyes from the curse of sin and death that so often characterizes our interactions on the planet and to look forward to when justice prevails, to when peace carries the day, to look To the day when pollution will see its demise, when crime, racial mistrust, and marital dissolution will be things of the past, to find in history the culmination of tomorrow, that tension that we live in in this era of already and not yet, and to see that our story points us to the promise that history resonates with promise. In the end, good triumphs. In the end, justice prevails. In the end, redemption wins. And we're reminded during Advent to see these promises and then to step out into our days and be part of bringing them to be. Advent reminds us of the eternal nature of the history we're in, the culmination in goodness. And invites us to take our place in that story. Second thing Advent reminds us is that our own sin is redeemed. That for this purpose was the first Advent. And to lift our eyes from today and to see ourselves clearly. For though we live in a world characterized by shortcomings, we walk in bodies and minds and souls that are characterized by weakness and failure, Nevertheless, the truth of Advent is that you are not your sin, that you are not your failures. Lift your eyes from the grinding nature of living in a body that is plagued by sin and death. And lift your eyes to the promised perfection of tomorrow's realization, that your true self is being realized as we walk through history. Something inside of you knows of tomorrow's promise. Everything that you long for is even now being made whole and fulfilled. This is our story. And Advent reminds me to go back to those times when I could see that clearly, to give my focus to that yet once again, to see that there is a resident hope within me that is there being now fulfilled. Goodness wins, life wins. The evil of hatred and prejudice and greed, these things are all defeated. And at a very personal level, my own temper will be dismantled. My own lust or sloth or envy or greed or gluttony, all of these things are destroyed. And I emerge from the fire of their destruction, made whole and made pure, and becoming all that my heart yearns to be. Advent reminds us to lift our eyes to the promise that you and I are being made whole and our destiny is being fulfilled to see beyond the shortcomings of today and to see to the promise of tomorrow. Third, Advent reminds us of God's indwelling presence, that at my very core I am one with God. There is within you and there is within me the capacity to love your husband even though he's a pain in the ass. There is within you the capacity to love your wife even though you've been worn down by so many arguments. There is within you the capacity to love your neighbor because God is within you and God is love. It's to look within you and see that there is something bigger than the mundaneness and normalness of life and it is within you for God is within you. There is a power that enables you to live at a higher level. I can live in love. I can live in peace. I can live in kindness and goodness through Christ who is strengthening me and through the Spirit of Christ that is indwelling me. And Advent reminds me of that grand truth. Advent locates me right somewhere in the midst of this grand narrative and says, this is what is going on. Look up. See your eyes lifted to the truth that will set you free. Advent reminds me to call out to God for the transformation that is promised within me. For my God lives within my very being. Advent reminds us that the power to love others and to care for others and to give ourselves in service to others exists in me because God lives within me. And as we lift our eyes during this season, we remember, oh yes, that is the Lord's promise. Oh yes, that is what God has asked of me. And yes, that is what God has given me. And yes, that's what erupts from within me. So Lord, once again, I surrender myself to your purposes during this season. So those are three things that we're asked to remember during Advent by the church fathers and mothers, those who have gone before us and have prepared us And taught us. Now, in order for these truths to kind of soak into our souls, especially in the Eastern Orthodox churches, Advent has been a time of fasting and a time of repentance and a time of seeking God in stillness and in quiet. And this is a good thing to do. It's a good thing to pursue those soul quieting exercises, setting ourselves apart for a special spiritual purpose. But most wings of the church have had a different emphasis unfold over the centuries, and Advent has become a season, rather than of quiet and fasting and reflection, has become a time of expectation or anticipation, a time to celebrate promise, to see that the world is not condemned to live under oppression, that injustice does not prevail in the end, that the longing within us for redemption is fulfilled. That personal guilt and shame and a sense of sinfulness is absolved such that it becomes completely irrelevant. Sin is just not that big a deal. That systemic evil in the world that is expressed in nations and in tyrants is being now overcome. This is the time to remember that. spirit of Advent is captured with that sense of expectancy, a hope that allows us to rise within and see that goodness wins and that I have a place in its victory. So yes, there is struggle, but so what? Goodness wins. Yes, there is difficulty and hardship, but so what? Truth wins. Yes, life is harsh and sin plagues, but so what? Life and love and kindness and peace win. So, I invite you to join with those throughout history to a simple activity of focus during these weeks leading up to the Feast of Christmas. Sit down with a notebook. Record what is good. Record what is hopeful. Sit by the fire. Sit by a window. Find a quiet place and reflect on that in life which speaks of promise and which speaks of expectation. Now, some of you are my friends, and I'm walking with you through a very, very dark time right now. And I can imagine that the idea of sitting down and thinking of all that is good and noble and right will just stump you. But that's okay. That's what friends are for. So if you find yourself stumped because your life has been so pushed down to see only the most based level of human existence, and if it is very difficult for you to raise your eyes to see the cosmic story with anything more than just a fairy tale commitment, then you need friends. Because sometimes what you can't see, others around you can see. And they can help you elevate your sight beyond the mundane. So I would encourage you, write a prayer, perhaps of hope. Thanks for what it is that you can already see. That's a good beginning. Write a prayer, a prayer of hope, anticipation for that which you cannot yet see. And then prayers to ask for eyes to see. Lord, show my heart the promise in elevated truth. Give me eyes beyond my downcast plotting and my being consumed with the mundane. Advent awakens us to this great truth if we give ourselves to this season, the great truth of hope. And when we stir up hope and awaken it, it tends to breed renewed devotion we become committed to being part of this story unfolding. We begin to see that the goodness being transformed upon the earth comes through us in many ways. And we find the Spirit begin to course through us, to our family members, to those that we have contact with through the week, and to the place of those in our cities. And we sense that, yes, the universe is on track. Yes, the universe is moving to redemption, and I am a part And we have a renewed commitment to listen to Jesus' words and to follow through on what he said about being salt on the earth and being light on the earth, because we have seen the story yet again. We have been renewed by our vision, and we find our place in that story. As we sang earlier about, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the verses have these disturbing realities mourning, exile, Satan's tyranny, all of that stuff. But the refrain comes back again and again. It says, lift your eyes to something bigger. This is not the sum total of reality. Lift your eyes to something that transcends that. Yes, people are unwise and people make unwise decisions all the time and there are consequences to that. And yes, tyranny defeats goodness from time to time and death's shadow is ever present. War and want are all around us. There are tough things that happen in life. But these are transient realities in the face of divine promise. Lift your eyes to a broader horizon, a horizon of hope. See the good around you. Pay attention. Notice when you see virtue in someone. There are people out there all the time who are living with dignity and nobility, who live self-sacrificially. There are people out there all the time who, if you have eyes to see, and if you're watching for it, who are living generously. There are people all the time treating each other kindly and being good. And there are wonderful blessings that accrue to us. Life is filled with goodness. And when you see this goodness, heed it, pay attention to it, watch it. It lifts your eyes to the promise of God that is resident in each one of those acts of goodness. And then you begin to see beyond the plodding. You begin to see beyond the sameness and you see the eternal promise of our cosmic story and you find your place in it and you make your contribution and it starts by changing your vantage point. Our vantage point determines our reality. Our vantage point determines our reality. The ancients knew this when they instituted Advent and what they tried to do was change our vantage point and to say, I want you to see from the perspective of the celestial I want you to see, the church fathers and mothers were saying to us, from the perspective of the heavenly, from the divine. See from the perspective of the noble and the good and the spiritual. Feed yourself on the reminders of all that is right. And in so doing, you will change your vantage point. Change how you see your internal world. It'll change how you see the people who are close by you. It'll change how you see the people in the outer world. And change how you see yourself. So, I encourage you these days, allow yourself a deepened experience of the Holy Spirit within by this simple practice of shifting your focus, shifting your vantage point, and stirring it up from within yourself. All right, I'm going to take a little extra time. (laughs) In the first service, somebody was talking about a 60-minute story they'd seen. And they said, uh, you know, the story was basically on how most news that we get uh, through the television or through the newspaper is bad news. And the the percentage of bad news stories versus good news stories. And they were talking about that, and they went on and they told three good stories. And it brought to my mind something that I had learned uh, recently. You know, one time I really thought that being a foreign correspondent would be the life for me, and I thought that would be an adventurous life in journalism. And so I follow the media closely and I listen to on the media on NPR and I kind of watch how journalists do what they do and I think about what if I'd done that with my life instead. And recently I was listening to a story by a a young woman who was reporting at a local television station. And she was just making a passing comment and she said, you know, when we've got a deadline to get to at 6 o'clock for the 6 o'clock news, the easiest thing to fill up dead space is crime and car wrecks, and so consequently, we'll fill up whatever space we've got with crime and car wrecks because everybody likes it, everybody watches it, it's easy to do. We go to one place, we get one local, we get one shot, we get it done, and we can get it done in a little bit of time, and we can get it done easily. It's easy. It's the path of least resistance, crime and car wrecks. So consequently, if you flip on the 6 o'clock news, you will see that the first 20 minutes are usually characterized by crime and car wrecks. And she said, that doesn't mean that they're the most noteworthy things, doesn't mean that they're the most newsworthy, it doesn't mean that they're the things that are most significant to what's happening in the community, it just means that's what sells and that's what's easy. And so we could take a noble high road and we could say, oh, those bad media people, polluting our minds with crime and car wrecks because it's the path of least resistance and it's easy for them. And we could stand in this high position looking down upon them if... We didn't do the exact same things in our lives because every time we stress on the fact that the kids are struggling in this area instead of celebrating the fact that the child is flourishing in this area, we're doing the same thing. We're taking the path of least resistance. We're going to what's easiest. It's easiest to worry. It's easiest to stress. It's easiest to fret. We don't have to put a lot of thought into it. It's like rolling downhill. You don't have to work to be ungrateful. You don't have to work to take something for granted. You don't have to work to stress over something. But you have to work to be appreciative. You have to work to be thankful. You have to work to see the good. You have to work at those things. They're challenging. They're demanding. And they're difficult. And here's what Advent invites us to do. To do the challenging. To do the demanding. To do the difficult. So I encourage you Get out your notepad, sit by the window, go outside, make a log, spend a half a day being quiet. Whatever it is that you want to do, do something to savor goodness in these next nine days. So Lord, be it so in our lives that we would have a higher vision and a higher truth that we would see ourselves in the midst of this cosmic story, find our place in it, and have our vantage point affected by it. Be that so in us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.